Welcome to the first of two very special episodes of Church Historia, The Christmas That Wasn't. So you guessed it, we're talking about Christmas. I'm Leslie. And I'm Stephanie. And since it's Christmas time, we thought we'd take a break from looking at Southern Christian traditions and talk about the history of the Christmas season in the United States. And this is actually based on some lectures that you've done, right? Yeah, it's one of the things that I get to do sometimes is to teach Sunday school classes, and it's something that I really enjoy getting the opportunity to do. So these episodes, we're going to be talking about things like Santa Claus... Macy's, Wassailing, etc., etc. So glad you're here to join us. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Steph. So the the first part of our conversation today, I like to call the Christmas that wasn't. So, oh my, yes. So before we can get to our modern Christmas. We need to go way, way back in time. And we're going to actually go and start with the early church. And so Christians, historically, early Christians in particular, were an Easter people. So there was very little biblical emphasis on Christmas or Mm -hmm. emphasis in the early church on Christmas. It was about Easter. It was about the the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's what was unique in the Jesus story. There is something wonderful and miraculous about the incarnation, but— We've all been born. Sure. We have all not risen none, from the dead. None, yes, we have all not risen from the dead. So the early the early church is really focused on being an Easter people. And the Bible doesn't give us a super clear birth date for Jesus. And so the early church isn't particularly focused on kind of picking a Christmas date or celebrating a Christmas date. Then if we fast forward a couple hundred years into the 300s, the Eastern churches begin to celebrate epiphany about celebrating Jesus being revealed as the son of God. So Jesus's encounter with John the Baptist at the river Mm -hmm. and this, this epiphany, this realization of Jesus as the son of God. So that gets us kind of a January 6th date. And then somewhere around the 400s, Christmas, then as the birth date of Jesus, starts to show up in the Western churches. Our first kind of record of a Christmas date is in 354, and it kind of comes in the midst of of all of these church councils that are meeting and kind of trying to codify Christianity and and set some structure for the early church. But so it's really kind of 300-ish years after the death of Christ before we start to get to a idea of, of Christmas, and it really comes as a secondary step after the epiphany starts to be celebrated. So then we have these questions around, well, when exactly do we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ? Because as we just said, right, the Bible doesn't give us mm-hmm. a specific birth date. So there's a tradition within the Roman world around a holiday on December 25th. It was part of the Roman winter festival season. So the Romans had a number of holidays in what is now December and January. So Saturnalia, it's about December 17th to the 23rd. The birthday of Sol Invictus, the sun god, is in late December. And then you have January Caldens or the, the new year. So Romans are kind of packed late December with lots of holidays. And in 567 at the Council of Tours, we finally get a, a setting of Christmas as December 25th. 
And that then gives us the 12 days of Christmas, which is the 12 days between Christmas and Epiphany. A lot of times we think oh. the 12 days of Christmas are the 12 days before Christmas, but they're not. They're actually between Christmas and Epiphany. And that is the traditional Christmas tide, Christmas season. Yeah. The 12 right. days is those 12 days. Just as an Easter tide is, is the time after Easter, Christmas tide is traditionally the time after Christmas. Correct. Yeah. So we finally get this five. 567. We we finally have a birth date for Jesus. And it's December 25th. So that kind of that sticks and carries on. And we're going to make a a bit of a leap kind of forward in time to the the pre-modern period. So thinking 1400s, 1500s, 1600s kind of in in there. And so Christmas as it coincides with other winter festivals and the winter period, kind of encounters this idea of of carnival, of this idea of inverting social norms to ultimately reinforce them. But you kind of have these moments of chaos. Our modern Halloween is kind of a toned down version of that. You can't normally go up to strangers' doors, knock on them, and demand food. It's a general it's a general rule well, of thumb. I guess you're right. I mean, not everyone can, I guess. <laughs> so as a general rule of thumb, but right, but one day a year, you can definitely do that. Well, you know, wearing a very interesting costume. Yes, right? And that's another, th- right? You can dress up as whatever you can cross-dress if you want. And that's okay on mm-hmm. Halloween. Like that, mm-hmm. the, the, sort of the rules are, the rules are loosened. So in the early modern period, that's kind of also what became true of the Christmas season as a mm. whole. Wintertime is the season of fresh meat in agricultural societies. It's when the year's supply of beer and wine is ready. So Mm. there's from a sort of agricultural crop cycle standpoint, there's a strong sense of feasting and this loosening of the social norms that happens to coincide with, with December 25th. So along with this feasting and fresh beer and fresh wine and all of that comes these kind of misrule traditions. So you have things like, particularly in England, the idea of mumming or cross-dressing, wearing of masks, drunkenness. There's lots of quotes about illicit coupling, playing of cards, public disturbances, mocking authority. These were kind of the times where everything went a little bit topsy-turvy. It was a time when the rich gave to the poor. We today might think that it like that that's kind of what giving looks like most of the year but in these agricultural societies it's the poor who are paying taxes to their lords or giving tithe or mm. very often in these early modern societies in Europe it is the poor are paying the rich some sort of money's owed or in kind mm. goods owed so this time of kind of christmas giving is is an inversion of that social norm and there was a Tradition of groups would go around, I'm going to call this pre-caroling, but groups would go around to the houses of the wealthy and demand gifts and they would give goodwill in return. And specifically Hmm. the tradition of wassailing where they would exchange a song for beer for money. But this wasn't exactly a voluntary thing. You didn't, if you didn't give money, then there was often some type of consequence, whether that would be damage to property or... This like, whole just kind period of, you're talking about sounds very much like the movie The Purge, which I've never actually seen, but it just sounds like I, all ooh. rules are gone out the window. It's this not time. quite all rules. It has its own rules. Okay. 
Okay. I say it, ha- it has its own rules. Okay. It's like the one day of the year that you can mock your boss and everybody, th- everybody agrees it's funny and it's all just pretend except everybody knows that there's kind of some truth in there. Yeah. But in return for that one day a year of getting to do that, then the implicit social contract is that the rest of the year you'll do what your boss tells you. Well, let's talk about, you use the word was sailing. You know, yeah. there's, here we come a wassailing among the leaves of green. But it sounds like the tradition of wassailing is not like this joyous frivolity among, you know, the snow. Well, it, it probably is for the people who are likely at least somewhat inebriated <laughs> singing loud, loudly at the neighbor's door at two o'clock in the there's morning. That. They're probably having a blast. But that is not <laughs> something that is inspired by the incarnation of Jesus. Correct. This is a this is a just like general social thing that was happening. Yes, that, that again has its roots in kind of the agricultural cycle of this is this is the time of feasting and of kind of the last hurrah before right before the winter sets in, before everything's going to have to be really carefully rationed and you know, this is the time of fresh meat and yeah. beer that hasn't gone stale yet. And so it is this the celebratory time that's almost a, a celebratory time in excess yeah. that comes along with it. And we see this in a lot of traditional folk holidays and celebrations, but are these moments of these carnival-type times where it's really important for social order to have times to break the social order hmm. because you break it in order to reinforce it. You can only do these deviant behaviors on this one day a year. And the rest of the year, you cannot yeah, and okay. that that reestablishment of order of kind of letting off steam or letting off a little bit of the edge of yeah. of things is really really important and we see this in a lot of different cultures mm. i don't know enough about sort of human psychology to be able to psychologize it but well we do get, it don't we we i mean i think st patrick's day yep cinco de mayo Yes. These are days where, for whatever reason, we decide we're going to go to a restaurant and maybe drink a bunch of alcohol and because it's Cinco de Mayo. It's like, well, yes, that yeah, have yeah. To do with I us. think we definitely have remnants of these carnival days. We just, not everybody participates to the same extent. Like this, these were the whole community was participating. Okay. The, the St. Patrick's Day, Cinco right. de Mayo's, even again, the Halloween's of the, of the world. Mm-hmm. They're there, but they're they're a toned down version of what what's these happening were. here. But but I think it is. You're exactly right. It's that same letting off steam. You know, I'm going to keep coming back to Halloween because it's I think the the easier one for me to relate this to. But I get to be somebody else and literally yeah. dress up as another person and pretend right. to not be myself today. Right. Yep. And I yep. think that as humans, we have needs for these moments of deviation. Yeah. So at the same time that all this was sailing, tomfoolery is happening. Yes. Christians are celebrating Jesus's. We have an official church holiday, at least in the Catholic tradition, that says December 25th is. Gotcha. Jesus's birthday. Interesting. And so all of this to say sort of this historical Christmas and here we're not talking about December 25th specifically, but sort of this season of December isn't this super pious thing that. It doesn't have necessarily a lot of religious markers about it. Okay. So 
if we hop across the ocean to the United States, we're going to take a stop in Massachusetts and hang out with the Puritans for a minute. Oh, Because in light of all of these uncouth things that are happening with the, the sailing and the tomfoolery, the Puritans are not big fans of Christmas. It has no biblical precedent. Whatever biblical precedent there is, it should not be in December. Right? It's lambing season. That's not happening in December. It's a Catholic holiday. Mm. Puritans have a lot of, lot of issues with that. And also there's all of this debauchery and drunkenness and ridiculousness. Around the same time, not necessarily having to do with Christmas, but it's around the same time. But it's around the same time and kind of Christmas celebration is used an excuse and the Puritans are not having it. Hmm. So they actually make Christmas illegal from ah. 1659 to 1681. If you are caught celebrating Christmas, so for example, going to mass on Christmas, you would be fined five pence. Oh my goodness. Although, to be fair, I don't think there were many Catholics in Puritan, Massachusetts going to Mass. But if you if you went to a church service, if you decorated your home, if you did not typical everyday things, you could be accused of celebrating Christmas and fined. Wow. So by the 1700s, there was kind of begrudging toleration for Christmas. And things shift as we get into the early to mid-1800s. And okay, maybe it's fine. And then Finally, in 1865, Massachusetts legally recognizes Christmas as a holiday. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, when we think about the history of Christmas in America, well, it's a Christmas that wasn't, for certainly not, not in Massachusetts for a while. The Baptists, who were one of the major groups of Christians in the United States in the early Republic, particularly in the South, had similar objections to all of this, you know, absurdity. And again, we can't forget that Christmas is Catholic. Council of Tours was a Catholic council, and a lot of these Protestant groups just don't want to have anything to do with anything that could remotely be Catholic, the 10-foot pole. Hmm. And so Baptists similarly are a no-go on Christmas, mostly. We'll talk about it here in a little bit, but as we get deeper into the 1800s, there's cultural factors that start to make Christmas more culturally palatable. Hmm. And so slowly, by the time we get to the 1880s, the Baptists are like, all right, maybe Christmas. And things really kind of change around 1888 when the Lottie Moon Christmas offering starts within the Baptist tradition, which is an offering that's collected for mission work. So mm-hmm. there's a very close tying of giving at Christmas and mission work, and that kind of seems to be the final push that helps the Baptists kind of really feel good about mm. celebrating Christmas. I think there, there are several points that talking about that brings up for me. One is just the reminder of the incarnation to a world that's made up of both the sacred and the secular. That there is a, a duality that is this kind of always present and is is even present in in the incarnation within you're talking about Christmas and the moment that Jesus is born and becomes incarnate, that duality is always in play. The other for me is this helps relieve some of the pressures about recovering Christmas. For me, about wondering if you're participating in Christmas piously enough is that there is not like a single dominant pious version of Christmas that was a thing that everybody did that we've that we've lost, that Christmas was a holy day. It was a day for getting drunk and bothering your neighbors until they <laughs> gave you food and money. It was an 
day like just like any other day. Like all, right. all of all of these things have been present. So I think mm. sometimes can feel a lot of pressure to wonder if we're doing Christmas piously enough. And so for me, th- this history helps kind of put that into perspective. You know, there are some years where you don't really feel like Christmas is, maybe the tree is up and maybe you're listening to Christmas music, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't feel like Christmas. And I think these stories and this history does relieve a lot of pressure to say it's all abstract, right? This is all made up. So whatever Christmas feeling you're looking for, know that for many people for many years, that wasn't even a thing and they still celebrated Christmas. You know, that is such a comforting thing, I think, especially when we're looking at what Christmas is going to look like in 2020, not being together in mass groups. I mean, it's just hitting me. Christmas Eve, we're not going to have church celebrations. We're not going to have candlelight services this year. We're certainly not in the same way right. that we do. You know, it'll, maybe it'll be a, a socially distanced, live streamed right. service, but it, it, will, it will not feel like it does in past years. So you may know, this relieve some tension and pressure for all of us as we're looking ahead to a year that will be very different. Yes. That Christmas has always had a long-standing tradition of being unconventional and weird and sometimes not celebrated and sometimes anti-celebrated. And may that give us some comfort in a difficult year. That's great. Absolutely. Part two of this special Christmas episode of Church Historia further explores celebrations we partake in during the Christmas season. We're going to talk about the tradition of giving gifts at Christmas, where that came from, including gift programs for children, credit card debt during the season, and we even cover the Macy's Christmas window tradition. Ultimately, we'll ask what these traditions teach us about Christmas and how we can learn from them. But first, we wanted to again sincerely thank you for listening to this podcast. The overwhelming support we've had has been so wonderful, and we're so grateful. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. It really helps other people know that this podcast is worth their time. All right, here we go. Let's talk about gift giving at Christmas. So historically, there's been a tradition of giving New Year's gifts or gifts at the New Year dating back to Rome as a kind of exchange of presents as a token of token and omen of a good year. So sort of at the start of the year, give presents and kind of wishing others well. And this is kind of an, it's, these are small tokens. These aren't big, giant gifts. This is kind of the, hey, thinking of you, hope, hope you have a great year. And by the time we get to the United States, the New York elite practice this tradition heavily. So New Year's is a big deal. They're giving gifts, much like the, was sailing and kind of carnival yeah, size of Christmas that we were talking that. about. It's also kind of present around these New Year's celebrations and these kind of elite or parties by the elite around around New Year's. And so at some point, and it's not really clear why or exactly when, gift giving migrates to Christmas hmm. instead of New Year's. And the scholars that I read suggested was that it might have been in part attempts to reform or to limit the debauchery of New Year's was to kind of temper some of that and, and put it onto the 25th, onto a religious holiday. All of that to say, kind of murky and unclear, but gift giving, kind of peer-to-peer gift giving moves to 
Christmas. Alongside all of this, we have the Industrial Revolution. In 1770, we get the first advertisements in the U.S. for New Year's gifts. Interesting. And so we start seeing advertising. We start seeing the ability to mass produce goods and making that kind of newly accessible for the middle class. This idea of kind of being able to afford gifts and to give gifts as a status marker of not not just are you like the elite because you're doing what they're doing. So you're doing what the cool kids are doing, but also like you can afford to do it that. So that kind of makes you well off. Also, there's kind of this idea of like the festival of presents for children that kind of gets loosely created about starting to give gifts to Mm. children. And also we have the advent of boxes and wrapping paper. Mm. And so now I'm not just giving you a token. Now there's that whole extra industry of got to put it in a box. I've got to wrap it. I'm going to make it look pretty. So I can't just give you things anymore. Now I have to give you right. a, a wrapped gift. And so by the 1820s and 30s, we start to see Christmas bazaars in major cities that kind of pop up. It starts with toy shops and confectionaries kind of decorating for the season and kind of doing special events and hosting holiday spectaculars. But it it grows and shopping starts to become an event. So you both shop for things you need. You're also just kind of generally looking. You're also kind of there to be seen. You might go visit Santa. This is a leisure time activity. So this is where we start seeing like Macy's department store starts to put up these big elaborate displays of kind of come and see. Museums put on major exhibits of spectacles of oddities and curiosities. So it's this pinnacle of leisure culture and, and activities. This is a a quote from someone's diary describing what one of these Christmas bazaars was like in New York in 1932. It says, Christmas Eve in the city of New York exhibits a spectacle which to a stranger must be highly pleasing and effective. Whole rows of confectionery stores and toy shops fancifully and often splendidly decorated with festoons of bright silk drapery interspersed with flowers and evergreens are brilliantly illuminated with gas lights arranged in every shape and figure that fancy can devise. During the evening until midnight, these places are crowded with visitors of both sexes and all ages, some selecting toys and fruits for holy day presents, others merely lounging from shop to shop to enjoy the varied scene. That sounds amazing. Yeah, so a few things to call out there, right? That's Christmas Eve. Oh. So this spectacle, initially it starts very kind of about Christmas Eve. Everybody's doing last minute Christmas shopping, if you will. And it's a family affair, right? That goes till midnight. Not only do you have both sexes, but all ages. Yeah. So imagining some very exhausted toddlers. Yes. Very overstimulated (laughs) and exhausted toddlers. But also I think this phrasing here is interesting. Selecting toys and fruits for holy day presents. Yeah, what is... So, right, it's not a holiday yet. Mm. It's a holy day. So we still do have this kind of connotation that December 25th is a holy day. It's a feast day. So it's just an interesting phrasing there. And along with this, we start to see some things that might remind us of our modern Christmas season, where now we start to see things like gift guides being published about, thanks to the Distant Revolution, there's eight different dolls that you can choose from. How do you know which one is the best? And these challenges of choice and how do we pick which one and you know more and more advertisements and the sort of the commercial encouragement of all this gift giving Hmm. 
One of the things I thought was really interesting is, well, actually two things. So in addition to all of this kind of increasing choice and industrial growth, one of the the scholars I read described it as awe and disorientation, amazement and stupefaction. That people are starting to have more choices than they have ever been before. And it's kind of overwhelming to the psyche. And so we see a lot of records of people getting, you know, they'll think it's awesome and cool. And then five years later when they're writing about it, now they're exhausted Mm. by it or they're kind of paralyzed by these choices and this complexity. And then there's also this lengthening of the shopping season from just Christmas Eve to all of December and Mm -hmm. then ultimately to Thanksgiving, to right after Thanksgiving. Because businesses are like, hey, this is great. Can we do this a little bit longer? And so one of the things I thought was really interesting is Thanksgiving historically was not a static holiday. Like right now it's the fourth Thursday of Mm. the month and it used to move and migrate. And so businesses actually lobbied TDR, Teddy Roosevelt, to move it to November and give it a static date to encourage more shopping and to give, in some ways, a a definition to the Christmas shopping season. Wow, really? Mm -hmm. We've been, we've been had. We've been tricked. A little bit. Oh, sorry. I'm glad they did it, though. I mean, I guess there are just so many lovely things about Thanksgiving just rolling into a celebration of Christmas, whether or not it's shopping. I mean, that's involved, but yeah, decorating. and Yeah, I think there's a pre-Christmas, you know, from a liturgical calendar standpoint, right? You have Advent that kind of does something similar from a, a religious standpoint. So I'd mentioned Macy's before about Macy's creating these windows. Well, that tradition started when the store opened in 1858. By the 1870s, it had become like the thing we know it today about going to look at the Macy's windows. Just if you're interested, the first steam-powered moving vehicles showed up in 1883. And so Macy's is just constantly trying to one-up themselves in this mixture of exotic decorations and traditional decorations, but really creating this spectacle. So we still have Macy's today, but there was another department store chain that really embraced this idea of kind of decking the halls and I think helped set the has now become the norm for what we expect from store decorations. And that's Wanamaker's, Hmm. which is, which is closed now, but it was founded by John Wanamaker, who was a Presbyterian of, of deep conviction. And he owned a department store chain and felt that his shops should be places of moral uplift and and of education. So he took Christmas time and decorating Christmas very seriously. So His stores were decorated as churches. Each store had its own director of music. And so they would sing carols and hymns. A lot of them had organs in them, these big kind of pipe organs, and they would play hymns and Christmas carols. And somebody described it as gothic revival brought to bear on store decorations. Wow. So stained glass window, pointed archways, this kind of opulence, but also this mixture of for religious messaging. Mm. And I'm not sure we can directly blame John Wanamaker for... (laughs) Or maybe some people would say, thank John Wanamaker for Mm. the constant playing of Christmas songs inside of stores (laughs) um, during during the Christmas season. But that that becomes this huge thing. And people come back, you know, people make almost pilgrimages to Wanamakers at Christmas to experience this spectacular. Wow. And so, again, is he the only one doing this? No, but he's doing it at such a grand scale that it really does show this, this mix of the commercial and the and the religious mm. around Christmas and Christmas shopping and Christmas decorating. 
I thought it would be potentially interesting to look at a couple of things around ethics and mm-hmm. Christmas giving as well. Because, you know, one of the hallmarks of Christmas is the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, published in 1843. And Scrooge at the time is not that odd for having people work on Christmas. Again, we kind of saw that with Puritans and the early Baptists. Yeah. Christmas is not a holiday by and large. But what the Christmas Carol starts to do is starts to embody a sympathy within the haves for the have-nots. So Mm. we talked a little bit a while ago about the inverting on Christmas where the rich would give to the poor and how that was considered this upheaval of the traditional social convention. Well, it's still kind of the case by the time we get to the Christmas Carol that this idea of a kind of social consciousness of the haves giving to the poor, and particularly the worthy poor is is a big conversation at this time huh. about, you know, the people who are working hard but just not, not making enough and the importance of giving to them. So there's this moving concern within middle class and upper middle class people around the plight of poor families and, and poor children. And then in the kind of social gospel era of the early 1900s, there's a lot of critiques and kind of concern around the inequities at Christmas, about shop clerks who have to work extraordinary hours, about the additional demand on child workers who are ironically creating children's presence, about Mm. the economic disparity between factory owners and people working in the factories. There's a a group called the Consumers League that in 1906 starts a, a shop early campaign so instead of, so they actually, they're advocating for lengthening the Christmas shopping season because they didn't want the shop being open for 14 or 16 hours a day. So actually they oh. they were advocating for extending the season instead of extending the days. I think it probably backfired them a little bit because I think we had just ended up with both. Yes, you just exactly. ended up with st- extending right, Christmas hours for longer. Right. But they were, they were hoping for that. There was a group called the Society for the Prevention of Useless Giving which oh. in 1912 tried to eliminate the social obligation for workers to buy gifts for their supervisors. Huh. So again, that tradition of kind of the poor giving to the yeah. the wealthy that the inequity of somebody who's making less money having to give a gift to somebody who's making more money. Mm-hmm. So there was there was that conversation as a result of the Victorian period, the idea of children as we know today and the sort of the protection of childhood, the innocence of childhood and the importance of childhood to become really strong. So there started to be lots of calls for all children to be able to get at least one present on Christmas. And so this starts a lot of the aid distribution because it starts oh. as this kind of ad hoc thing where these people are getting together and, you know, buying presents and distributing them here, there, everywhere. But then they start to realize, well, that child actually got three presents because three different organizations gave that child <laughs> one present, but this child got no presents because nobody knew that they didn't get one. And so they start to set up a lot more structure around kind of giving aid and giving distribution. And a lot of that legacy is kind of what we see today with programs like Toys for Tots yeah, or okay. Angel Tree that got worked out in the early 1900s kind of in response to these kind of Christian ethical questions around gifts and Christmas and and who gets them and how do we how do we make sure that everybody has one so there's also this giving in debt Hmm. you know Christmas is a time of indulgence of bending the rules so that that kind of legacy of carnival where we would do things that we maybe otherwise wouldn't including purchasing things that we 
maybe otherwise wouldn't. Um, and there's, and the, right, there's complex reasons for gift giving, wanting kids to have something, wanting to show off status, the pressures of marketing mm-hmm. and commercials that make us feel like we need to spend things. So holiday debt rose 8% in 2019 from $1,230 in 2018 to $1,325 in 2018. That's on average. And this is from LendingTree. And they first started conducting their study in 2015. And between 2015 and 2019, the average holiday debt had risen 34%. Oh, my. And so— How are they calculating that? I think it's credit card debt. Okay. Okay. My 2017 stats say that Americans spent an average of $1,054 on Christmas. 50% would take zero to three months to pay off the debt. And 29% would take five or more months to hmm. pay off the debt. And so I think it's important for us to acknowledge the complexities around giving and that hmm. it is both a wonderful thing and can also be a not wonderful thing, particularly when we have all of these intersections of influences that may be pushing us to do things that are maybe not in our best interests. And so my ultimate conclusion here was amid the various motivations for giving is to give based off your values. Hmm. And those may vary from person to person about what things are most important to them, but it's to take a moment amid the holiday season and all of this, all of this rush and these spectaculars and this grandiose, celebration that Christmas is, but also to take a moment and and reflect and say, is what I'm doing aligning with my values? Am I buying gifts that align with my values? Am I giving to people that aligned with my values? Am I doing what I want to be doing? Or have I been swept up in this grand Mm -hmm. thing, which in some ways is designed to overwhelm and to confuse. And it is both a holy day Mm. and a holiday. Mm-hmm. And I think throughout its entire history has had very much an intermixing of the sacred and the secular yeah. within it. So if you're listening to this during the Christmas season, may you give intentionally and with care and with thought and have a Merry Christmas. Be looking for our second Christmas episode releasing in just a few days in which we talk about the big man in red. Throughout the course of history, he's gone by many a name, but we all know him as Santa. We'll talk about the figure of St. Nicholas and how his existence evolved over the years to eventually become the jolly, portly man in red. All episodes of Church Historia were recorded at the historic Scarrett Bennett Center in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson, producer and editor, and our historian is Stephanie Fulbright. The cheery music in today's episode was played by Andrea Yoey, and I went ahead and added the jingle bells in the intro for, you know, Christmassy effect. You can find all things Church Historia at churchhistoria.com. <laughs>